0: This is Classical Ideas with Greg Soden. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. In 2016, Pew Research found that one in five U.S. adults were raised in interfaith homes with a mixed religious upbringing. Furthermore, Pew's 2015 Religious Landscape Study Found that almost 4 in 10 Americans who have married since 2010 have a spouse who is in a different religious group. By contrast, only 19% of those who wed before 1960 report being in a religious intermarriage. This changing religious landscape needs to be continually discussed as interfaith living increases in society. Recently, I did an episode with Ben Marcus from the Religious Freedom Center, and after that episode, a man with the Twitter handle, at Interfaith Man, reached out to me. His name is Tahul Sharma, and he is an interfaith activist. Our wide-ranging conversation in this episode touches on practicing Sikhism and Hinduism in an interfaith family with parents from two different religions. We talk about interfaith activism, politics, filmmaking, And much more. Tahul Sharma grew up in an interfaith family and continues to practice Sikhism and Hinduism. He is a program manager for faith outreach at Brave New Films and an interfaith minister in residence at the Episcopal Diocese of Los Angeles. His interfaith activism is impressive, and he is, in my view, someone to pay attention to for discussion about religion. And I'm happy to have had this conversation with him for Classical Ideas. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Tahil Sharma. Tahil Sharma, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. Thank
1: you so much, Greg. Appreciate it.
0: I'm hoping you can just spend a moment and sort of introduce yourself to the audience. Um, you can talk about anything you want, maybe like your current job, some other jobs you've had in the past, and just anything that springs to mind.
1: Well, my name is Tahil Sharma. I am a interfaith activist based here in Southern California. I currently work at Brave New Films as a program manager for their Brave New Faith Partners program. Um, And I've been doing interfaith work for the past six years uh, locally, regionally, um, and even through some national and international projects as well.
0: Awesome. Where have you kind of worked over the past several years leading up to your current role? Uh, Leading to my current
1: role, I've worked in places including the Episcopal Diocese of Los Angeles as an interfaith minister in residence. Um, I served as one of the youth representatives to the United Nations for the Parliament of the World's Religions. And I also worked as a communications consultant for uh, Religions for Peace International based at the UN headquarters in New York City.
0: Wonderful. Um, So I'm kind of curious about a lot of your work today, and we'll talk about a lot of things in our conversation. Um, Can you sort of set the stage for what your religious identity is? Maybe you could tell us a little bit about your family and kind of like how you fit into the spiritual world. Of course.
1: Um, so my background is Hindu and Sikh. Uh, my father's side of the family is Hindu and my mother's side of the family is Sikh. And uh, growing up with two faith traditions obviously can be very complicated and can be very nuanced because contextually speaking, both communities have uh, their traditions, their norms, their own languages and their own uh, community norms, which means I had the opportunity to really uh, immerse myself in these communities in unique ways, but it also opened the door of opportunity for learning about other communities as well, because my upbringing was less centered on the dogma and more centered on the spiritual interconnectedness of what it meant to share the world with other diverse worldviews. And my parents were very open to that because they understood what it meant to be um, at conflict in terms of faith within a family. And in my upbringing, they made it very clear that we we must be accepting and open hearted to those that are different from us. And it therefore created a a major trajectory shift in my understanding of the world. Um, somehow it actually ended up being a part of the bigger epiphany that I had in high school about my professional career. But somehow, even when I wanted to become a doctor, it was always about helping people. Um, when I wanted to focus on translation and diplomacy, it was about helping people. And now as an interfaith activist, I do that in a multitude of ways.
0: So would you grow up like in your youth, would you like spend time going to like Sikh Gurdwara and also Hindu temple? Like would you do both like every single week kind of throughout a normal year?
1: Um, it would be more sporadic more than anything else at a younger age because my parents were both working uh, full time and a lot of the time my father was actually not in the country. He was helping with um, issues back in India, but um, it was more about a a a process of self-formation and self-discovery. Um, So it would be my choice when I would want to go to the Gurdwara or the temple to really go learn about things myself or to do some forms of research. And at a younger age, um, going on Sundays was probably the most normal thing to do just because it was a general practice in the U.S. community since everyone else is kind of basically in a Sunday mood to do religious stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And at the same time, it was also a matter of of my parents saying, you know, we only know the really basic stuff that we practice. Um, you're sort of on your own when it comes to everything else. And that really gave me a flexibility to um, jump into these communities in very new and unique ways.
0: So growing up in an interfaith community and in an interfaith family, I mean, um, you had a very unique upbringing, and I think that your upbringing is actually going to be replicated more and more and more as the United States continues to diversify, but you grew up that way, practicing Sikhism and Hinduism, and then that led you into the world of interfaith work. So can you kind of just tell the audience a little bit about what the concept of interfaith means and how somebody might go about pursuing that as like a professional uh, goal?
1: Yeah, um, so interfaith cooperation is not as simple as taking it for uh, the phrase that is, that is used. Um, interfaith sort of reminds us that we all have a faith or a trust or a confidence in something uh, that is bigger than us. For a religious person, that might look like a divine entity or nature. For someone uh, that might not believe in a divine entity, that might be trusting humanity or trusting the scientific process. And for us, that cooperation doesn't just mean that we recognize our diversity and that we find common ground but that we also seek to understand how we came to the same, if not similar, conclusions from different journeys. It also means that we have to be uncomfortable with some forms of disagreement in how we uh, relate to each other, and that it ultimately leads us to a productive process in, in trying to work with each other to solve common problems.
0: Okay, cool. So now that we have sort of like a definition uh, and a little bit about your background, I'm curious kind of about your your current life as well. Um, So as an interfaith person who is Sikh and Hindu, I'm curious about what like a normal calendar year of practice looks like in your life like these days. Like what does it look like throughout a course of a year to be Sikh and Hindu all at the same time?
1: So for me, I take it as a very... um spiritually healing process uh, because a lot of the times nowadays at least my visiting of a Hindu temple or a Sikh Gurdwara isn't as efficient or as uh, continuous as I hope it would be. Um, And that's because it's mainly because I've been so involved in my activism work that um, a deep part of both of my spiritual practices tells me that if I'm to engage with my faith or with the divine, it means I have to engage with people and with service. Mm. Um, So a lot of my daily practice and routine is doing my prayers and how I'm usually used to um, uh, creating a relationship with the divine, but also just being in as involved and as connected with people through conversation, through dialogue, and through some meaningful volunteer work. Um, and obviously my professional work to help me uh, really understand what it means to connect with creation.
0: What does a normal day of work look like for you whenever you like wake up in the morning and go to your place of work? And what do you do like during the day?
1: Um, In the daytime, I uh, am the typical nine to six person. I um, have to be in communication with uh, dozens of people throughout the day inside and outside of the office, Um, connecting them to the material that we create at Brave New Films, which are full length and short piece documentaries that focus on the storytelling aspect of uh, social justice and human rights issues here in the United States and around the world. Um, And my particular role is to help make this content more deliverable to faith communities with an aspect on moral urgency rather than a political platform or partisanship.
0: Okay, so um, I kind of want to ask a question that's similar for both Sikhism and Hinduism. I've only done one episode in the past on Sikhism, and I've done a few on Hinduism. And what I'm curious about for you is what you like about both of these traditions. Like, what do you like about, what do you love about Sikhism? And then conversely, what do you love about Hinduism? The one thing,
1: um, well, there are many things I love about both faith traditions, to be honest, but you only run a a, a short episode of a podcast. so yeah. <laughs> I only will, will run by a couple of things. That's um, fine. For, Sikh, for Sikhism, um one of the things that I love is um this phrase that we say at the end of our um sort of community supplication as we call it in ardas uh the phrase is nanak naam chardi kala tere pane it's this idea that Guru Nanak reminds us that we are to be relentlessly optimistic, even in the face of the worst situations. Hmm. And it's because we look to God as the one that cares for the welfare of all creation. And that phrase is really important to us as a community because we, we are always in a situation where we pray not just for ourselves, but for the entire universe. And in that selflessness that we put into practice, um, with things like langar, with things like seva, um, we keep ourselves constantly in this notion that faith is nothing without action. And the Sikh community has always made that absolutely key in terms of how they express their principles of faith. And it's been a deeply moving part of how I continue to do the work that I do because I'm deeply motivated towards justice and equity because my faith just doesn't just remind me that it embodies itself like that, you know, on a constant basis.
0: There's, there's a bit that the daily show did a couple years ago with Hassan Minhaj where right. he had a uh, Waris Abduwalia, who's the actor who's in um, Wes Anderson films and right. they did a panel and And he was, you know, satirically talking about why don't Sikhs throw other uh, groups under the bus. And everything you just said kind of talks to me about that, about that relentless selflessness. Like that's a value that seems to be pervasive across the Sikh community in the United States. Absolutely.
1: And I think it draws into the larger point of why the Sikh community now does seem to have some sort of new center of attention uh, that people emphasize in faith communities, because for it still being the fifth largest religion in the world with millions of adherents, um, a significant majority of people in the United States still don't know what a Sikh even is, uh, let alone being a part of a faith tradition. Um, and in terms of of this idea of confusion and misconception, I think the main reason why it's very important that the Sikh community learns to establish its own identity in the way that it does is because uh, following the Oak Creek, Wisconsin shooting, um, the main narrative shift that took place was Sikhs are not Muslims. And unfortunately, the mainstream media did not emphasize the point that you should not be differentiating a target, you should be abolishing the idea that there should be any targets. Mm. Um, and it therefore created this sense of responsibility from the Sikh community that, you know, we do have our own unique faith identity, but that doesn't mean you take anyone and throw them under the bus at our expense. Um And I think that's why the Sikh community has taken it upon itself to help with so much of this interfaith activism and particularly emphasizing um, the opportunity to, to grow this understanding and this literacy of why our faiths are so unique and different, even though they may even have
0: shared history. Wonderful. Okay, so the second part of my question is, what do you love about Hinduism?
1: The thing I love about Hinduism the most is, I think, the idea of pluralism. Um, so an engaged di- uh, diversity that allows us to, again, look at each other for our our similarities, our differences, and to further manifest a sense of, of moral urgency towards each other rather than just to ourselves. Um, and the reason why... Pluralism seems to be this main point in Hinduism is because there's always a misconception on our understanding of the divine. Um, In in Hindu theology, uh, there is uh, this practice of idol worship that is very common. There is this practice of understanding that there are numerous gods and goddesses, but that inevitably all of those things represent this one almighty entity that we all share. Um, And that means that within the Hindu community, there are numerous aspects of understanding of how we see the divine and how the divine plays a role in our life. And in that relationship with other faith communities outside of Hinduism, that concept seems to still be very significant and very respected in how Hinduism sort of began as a religion thousands of years ago. And there's this particular... uh, quote that was used by Swami Vivekananda at the Parliament of the World's Religions in 1893, which mentions that each individual has their own paths which are straight or crooked or zigzag depending on where they come from in the world. Um, But at the end of the day, just as the rivers meet the ocean, so do we meet with the divine.
0: What is your understanding of the divine as an interfaith Sikh and Hindu?
1: Um, I think this is where I think the intersection sort of becomes very apparent. Both Hindus and Sikhs understand that the ultimate divine is unseen, is genderless, and is present in all things. So when I look at another individual when someone says namaste or sashrika you're recognizing that there's a divine spark in them that exists in all things that you are bowing to rather than to the individual themselves who may deserve their proper or certain dignity in the process
0: so are you kind of referring to like the atman within all of us exactly okay cool um do you have any favorite like readings or books or movies or magazines or other media that you would suggest to people who are looking to learn more about Sikhism or Hindu practices? Um, for,
1: um, each community, I would definitely recommend going to the translations of the texts. Um, for Hinduism, the, uh, the Vedas and the Upanishads have special translations in, um, Coming from Oxford, coming from Penguin Books that you can definitely find in bookstores. Uh, For the Sikh community, it would be uh, going to see what kinds of translations are available because those can be a bit more uh, challenging uh, just because no major, major publishers have really sort of done those translations and plus the books are lengthy yeah Um, they are holy texts so we shouldn't be too surprised by that yeah um and in terms of any other visual media that would help the bbc actually has done a really good documentary several years ago on Sikhism that you can find on youtube uh it's called bbc the six um it's about an hour and a half, two hours long, and it's very, very comprehensive in terms of the historical um, context and upbringing of Guru Nanak, all the way to the current um, atrocities that took place against the Sikh community in 1984. Um and for the Hindu community, there are numerous resources available. It's honestly just a matter of doing a simple Google search and typing in stuff about Hinduism and being mindful that you need to step away from the the comfort zone of Wikipedia because that doesn't really encompass all of the knowledge base of what you can learn about in terms of world religions.
0: Right. Um- are you conflicted at all about anything involving either of your traditions? Like, is there any things that you're... What are you still navigating? Um, what I'm still navigating, I think, is historical baggage.
1: It's actually not anything that's too dogmatic or or theological in nature. Because when people ask me if, if either of those communities conflict more in my mind, or if I prefer one over the other, it's like asking me if I blink my left eye more than my right eye. Oh, wow. Uh, Because they're very deeply and equally a part of my practice. Um, And it's not a practice that I necessarily was forced into. I was definitely born into it, but was given full um, autonomy from my parents in choosing what my future would be like and I chose to accept them both very equally and in doing so I think it's made me look past the uh, the dogma and how divisive it can be when trying to create a unique identity sometimes Mm -hmm. Uh, but historical baggage is historical baggage and that has a very different imprint on the general mindset of how the communities function and get along with one another um, and again, I bring up the, the relevance of uh, the year 1984 when uh, there was a, a difficult a difficult few patches that took place between the Hindu and the Sikh community in India.
0: So something you just said is jumping out at me, how your parents were very open to allowing you to explore each tradition fully, but it seems like you also explore many traditions fully. Like how often do you go to like other houses of worship? Like what is your involvement in other things? I know you mentioned the Episcopals earlier on. So how do you personally seek to learn more about uh, different traditions?
1: So my practice of this exploration actually started when I was four or five years old. Um, I had a babysitter from Uh, Oaxaca, Mexico, who uh, used to take care of me since my parents were working so much. Um, And she actually started me on this process because every Sunday, uh, she would take me to Sunday Mass uh, that was being held in Spanish at one of the churches in uh, West Los Angeles. Um, And as being someone who became very inspired by learning different languages, who became very inspired by learning about different traditions. Uh, this definitely impacted the way that I see the world and how I was immediately able to pick up the similarities and further become comfortable with how those those differences bring us to those same conclusions. Um, so when it comes to how I practice that now, I mean... I'm always you will always find me at a synagogue a mosque a church um some sort of religious center for a different community like on a weekly basis. Uh, just because I'm always trying to find new ways to build bridges. I'm always trying to find new opportunities to create dialogue. And I'm always kind of curious about every congregation's context, because I know that, especially with the political nuances that we're facing now, uh, sometimes these communities can
0: be at unease, even if they follow the same worldview. What What an excellent segue. Let's expand to a national and global scale here. I'm curious about what is the situation regarding like the growth of interfaith population in, in the U.S., Canada, Britain, whatever. How mm-hmm. common is interfaith becoming? Is interfaith growing? What are you noticing as far as global trends? Um, In terms of global trends, um, inter-
1: interfaith children that are now becoming interfaith adults has been actually more common than we realize. Um, I think we need to remember that I think historically, for the United States, for example, um, with the uh, incoming communities coming from across the world, from the late, the early 1800s to even as early back as the time when the slaves were being brought in from Africa, we notice that there are these communities that are mixing and becoming uh, these interfaith children, or that are getting the impact of two different faith communities, where the individual gets a choice at the end of the day um this has been something that's been happening for centuries because this is what happens uh at the expense of uh, conquest it's the expense of what happens because of globalism and multiculturalism um and it's it's something that we shouldn't think as out of the norm it's always been a part of the norm um it's just that we haven't really put our microscope lens on it um and I think, especially now, in this, in such an interconnected and innovative communicable world, um, these populations that are expressing different multi-religious um, uh, practices are becoming more common than ever before. Um, and you don't have to take my word for it. Uh, Pew Research has done a lot of this this work in understanding that, and. In contexts like the United States, which is seen as sort of this diverse mosaic, um, you will find numerous communities of folks that are mixed between uh, religious and spiritual, religious and philosophical, religious and even secular identities in the way that they practice their, um,
0: their upbringing and their understanding of the world. Okay, so you've probably had many, many conversations in your career with interfaith people in interfaith relationships right what kinds of uh stories have they told you about challenges that they've faced in this country regards to their interfaith uh, relationship or identity or whatever
1: so many of the stories
0: that i've heard
1: are actually very much in line with the very same experiences i've had um People are still not comfortable with this idea that that we don't fit into a box. It's actually very challenging for a lot of people to see that, uh, oh, if you're practicing a single tradition, it's understandable that you have a, a specific journey to follow. But it seems impossible when you have to be um, following more than one. Um uh, there are folks that say, like, well, you have to choose one over one over the other. That's not how religion works. Um, and to to respond to that, I'm like, I don't think you understand how religion <laughs> works, because clearly it's never been one single system that's been uh, congruent or consistent for centuries or millennia. They may carry some some you know universal facts about them uh, that are still consistent, but not in terms of the actual institutions themselves, um, and I and I think I think understanding that religion and spirituality are not necessarily places to keep people in boxes anymore is actually very important because we also have to understand that the impact of our general re- religious, spiritual, and even humanistic understandings of the world means that we have a tendency to to need to be reminded that there are different ways of exploring solutions. And as someone who really grew up to appreciate different traditions, what happened was because I was able to visit these different places of worship, I not only learned how it meant to, to be good or kind or just in a different community, I learned that there was a new way of understanding my own tradition, which made it stronger for me in terms of my identity. I became a stronger Hindu and Sikh because I learned about Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, atheism, secular humanism, and beyond. Because they gave me reminders of, you know, sometimes it requires a step back and a fresh perspective to really question the identity that you're in. So I'm all about you know, asking the questions and being curious because I don't think the divine made such a complicated world just for us to really go with the flow.
0: Are there any like, without giving away any like personally identifying information or anything like that, are there any like particularly uh, amazing or particularly terrible uh, stories that jump out at you from any people that you've come across? (laughs) Um... I think one of the
1: – there are two stories. I'll give a bad one first and then a good one. Um, okay, cool. <laughs> the, the first negative story I had, I remember, was in high school when a friend of mine asked me what uh, religion I am. And at that time, I was still very much in, in sort of my, my more kumbaya understanding of interfaith. Um, for those of you that are mm-hmm. listening, there's not just one kind of interfaith. And we have to make that very clear because interfaith is for everyone, but not every kind of interfaith work is for everyone. uh, Because we always have to make a space and make it as inclusive as possible. Um, So in this case, when I was in my Kumbaya stage, I told this friend that, you know, I come from a Hindu and a Sikh background, but I feel like every one of us can get along. Um, And this friend of mine came from the Latter-day Saint community. And he told me that oh well you're going to hell um and I was taken a bit uh, taken a bit aback by that and I said even I even if I believe and agree that Jesus played the role that he did for the Christian community that I'll go to hell and he's like yep because you have to submit to him only and nothing else and at in a at an age in high school when you really want to get along with everyone, and you hear something like that, it can be really challenging to, to, to really, um, to really try to connect with people when your intentions are good, but you don't actually come to the same conclusions. Right. Um, And it continues to shape me till now how uh, some of this dissent and disagreement comes with, again, that that status quo that comes with religion and spirituality sometimes, that if we're traveling our path, we can't go astray from it or else it will destroy us. So
0: what about a good one? Tell
1: me a happy story. A really happy story that I had was actually at an interfaith conference that I went to in Mexico. Um, There was a, a... a Hindu um, a prayer service going on for the Hare Krishna community called a Pushpanjali, which is where you offer flowers as a form of uh, an offering to the God Krishna. And you know, being a Hindu, um, I understood how the, the prayer worked, I understood what I needed to do. But lo and behold, this room of about a couple of hundred Catholics who were baptized, confirmed and beyond actually decided to do the practice as well and I kind of fell into a shock because I knew they recognized that Krishna was not Jesus I mean we were on the same page about that but at the same time I was super curious about this this practice that you know would send any bishop or a cardinal or even the pope probably uh, into a coma of sorts (laughs) And I was super curious and I went to all of these people and I asked many of them individually, like, you know, this is a Hindu practice. I hope you understand that. Um, (laughs) I'm not saying that you shouldn't do it, but I'm kind of curious as to why you're doing it. And, they were, and a lot of them were super open about it. They said, you know, this is another way for us to understand Jesus, our faith, and God. And if we're trying to help a community and to show them solidarity, we don't have any problem in practicing with them. And I thought that was one of the most beautiful things that I had heard. And it kind of reminded me of sometimes how rigid the interfaith movement can be here in the United States and in a lot of the Western world. Uh, Because there's this understanding that interfaith work also means that your faith is yours and mine is mine. We do our things separately, but when we come to the common table, we can try to figure stuff out. And in Mexico, I learned that interfaith collaboration meant that you can actually support a different community's faith practices because it has helped complementary to you and your understanding of them as well as your personal relationship with the divine.
0: That's excellent. I remember I had a conversation last year with a Jesuit priest who was posted to Japan in the 1960s, and while he was there, he started to study under, uh, I think it was Yamada Roshi, who was a Japanese Zen master, and this priest, Father Robert Kennedy, became... Ordained as a Zen sensei and then eventually as a Roshi. And he's still a Zen Roshi and a Jesuit priest in New Jersey, and he's in his mid-80s. And he's been doing this for like the last fifty years now, living in between these two worlds, kind of like you. Huh. That's that's so interesting because I'm surprised that uh, none of the the clergy here in the United States have fainted hearing that. Right. Well, and he, he was actually, he told me the story of it. He was actually encouraged to study it by his Jesuit uh, superiors in the 60s when he went because it was just a different time. And um, he's written a bunch of books about it too. Like he's got a really interesting one called Zen Spirit, Christian Spirit, talking about how his... Um, uh, contemplative Zen life actually brought him closer with his relationship with Jesus. So there's a lot of ways that this work seems like it can play out for people of all different backgrounds. Exactly. And I really have to hand it to
1: the Jesuits again, because they are uh, definitely the, the the community that's always like, no, 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 please explore more. That is the
0: point. (laughs) So cool. Um, So, what are you? So, you gave your example from Mexico, and I'm curious about other places as well. Have you heard any stories about challenges that interfaith people are facing, um, like say in like Europe or Australia or Asia? Have you heard anything about other international stories like that? Um, Japan is always a good place for me
1: to really learn what it means to normalize that kind of multiple. Uh, That multiple perspective adherence uh, because there's a very common uh, saying in Japan that you are born a Shinto, you get married as a Christian, you die as a Buddhist,
0: but you live as an atheist your entire life. (laughs) Hmm. Interesting. So you are deeply involved in activist work and you've alluded a little bit to um, how this looks on a week by week basis for you, like visiting other houses of worship and having conversations, and like one look at your Twitter feed, and you are obviously highly involved in politics as well. And I'm curious if you can comment, however you see fit, on the current political climate, um, especially in the post days of the 2018 midterm elections on how you see religion mattering in American politics from your perspective.
1: Absolutely. Um, I think from the establishment of the United States through the original 13 colonies, I think the sense of pushing for a separation of church and state has always been a a deeply complicated um, dialogue because... Separation of church and state is very easily said and preached, but in practice, it becomes very complicated when a significant percentage of your community members and your leadership happen to be religious. So what do you do in that kind of a situation? Well, I think in especially a more partisan situation, Uh, Following the 28 midterm elections, I think it's become very clear that we have to look towards our legislative, executive, and judicial uh, bodies as people of faith and moral conscience to step away from their party loyalty and to really focus on the accountability that goes with the job, the moral urgency of human dignity, and the absolute need to promote justice and equity for all.
0: Are there any really hopeful examples that you have uh, that really inspired you after the election? Like what, um, how do you feel about some, what are some good things that you see as coming out of this election cycle?
1: The first biggest thing is uh, the women uh, that have been elected. Um, over a hundred women to be elected to our legislative body is phenomenal. Um, the fact that we have many firsts, including the first two Um, Muslim congresswomen, Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, uh, the first two Native American congresswomen, which seems sort of like an anomaly to me because I would have assumed that there would have been Native American (laughs) congresswomen. One would think. One would think, um, but I guess not. Um, And the fact that this still seems to be a trend towards the reflection of our diversity within our federal government, um, and one that is certainly challenging the status quo of a lot of the divisiveness and the vitriol that's come out in the past, uh, not just couple of years, but couple of decades, um, that is focused so much on party loyalty.
0: So what are you really worried about after the election? Because there was plenty to worry about before the election. Now the election has happened. So we know what the next couple of years sort of look like for our legislative bodies. What are you really worried about in the next two to four years.
1: Um, I'm definitely concerned about having a lame duck Congress again, um, because we saw what this was like under the Obama administration from 2010 onwards. um, When you don't have all of the, the, the systems in line under a same government or under at least some sort of cooperative bipartisanship, um, it always is going to lead to more um, division and I think that the push that's being made through Speaker Pelosi of trying to promote bipartisanship is going to be quite the, um, quite the show, because we know that in the past several years particularly, bipartisanship has not been the norm. And we have now entered a divided Congress, which we can guarantee is not going to pass a lot of legislation, um, which means aside from having struck down a lot of the the major things from Obamacare, a lot of the major Obama-era sort of uh, regulations, um, it's going to be very tough to reinstill a lot of the the positive and productive things we've needed as a society when we clearly have entered a Congress that once again is very disinterested in, in trying to cooperate or to bring a comprehensive solution and is willing to put its, its party loyalty first.
0: Something that really strikes me is the contradiction of belief and action of many of our legislators so for example uh, many of them would profess a strong religious faith yet their political voting is directly in contradiction with say like the words of Jesus right. w- what are some uh, disappointments you feel with our um, quote-unquote religious legislators who basically do everything um, they say everything right but then their voting is completely in contradiction with what the words of Jesus actually say so it's funny you mentioned that because I actually would disagree with
1: you not because what you're saying isn't true but it's because you're not understanding the actual practice of what these people are actually saying is a part of their faith tradition they're not necessarily practicing an entire comprehensive, compassionate religion. They are practicing a religion of convenience.
0: Mm. Okay, say more.
1: And they're really focusing in on what really benefits them and their personal relationship with the divine and that it has nothing, absolutely nothing to do with the comprehensive compassion and justice and mercy that they should pursue when being told to them by their creator. And, and and that basically looks like what's been going on in Congress for num- a number of years now. There's this idea that we're looking towards the sacredness of all life, that you look from the womb to the deathbed to make sure that you strive for the dignity and the justice of an individual, when in reality, that dignity is only sought out for when that person seems to have conceived and not anywhere beyond that. And unfortunately, when you create a system as complicated as that, um, you're not really looking at anyone's dignity. You're looking to see how much it benefits you at the end of the day. If you happen to say that you're a Christian um, who follows Jesus Christ to the word with a capital T, um, you would know that if you want to help someone uh, sort of prevent them from having just something as as complicated as an abortion, then you would also understand that you want to make sure that that child doesn't die at any point from gun violence, that you make sure that that child is taken care of because their health care is covered, that you make sure that the environment is so sound for them that they can actually have their own future living in a breathable, livable, walkable way. And the fact that the the what's being spoken about isn't preached is just saying that it's just all about the convenience of the individual politician's views that i am a christian only when it comes to my christianity not anyone else's
0: oh wow yeah there's a lot there that's so (laughs) that's so interesting um okay so (coughs) a question that i often ask of guests is uh To imagine that you were visiting a classroom where I'm the teacher and I have a group of 30 high school seniors in front of you and I've asked you to come in and talk to them about your area of interest. So I would have like, uh, you know, like a Zen teacher or local Hindus come in or local Christian pastors come in and answer Q&A. So if I were to invite you to give a talk on the topic of interfaith to a group of 18-year-olds, what would you want them to walk away thinking and knowing about the interfaith movement within the U.S. and the world? I would want them to know a couple of
1: things. Um, The first thing is interfaith work always starts as a conversation. And if you're not ready for the conversation... The conversation will always be ready for you, because I think we like to we like to look at interfaith as just being something separate from general society. And the fact of the matter is, is many parts of the world have concluded that living in an interfaith society has already become a norm. Uh, the United States, for the most part, expresses that ideology very clearly. And that even diversity among a single faith tradition exists enough that you can have an interfaith or an intrafaith conversation. Um, because we know that all of our conclusions are not going to be the same. We have not been made, we've been made in the face of a divine entity, but not in the mind of a single identity. And if you're ready to have a conversation with someone, you don't need to prepare anything except for just being yourself. Um, It's something that you have to be uh, willing to do, but you'll always be ready for it because it is something that is about being in the moment. It's not a debate. It's a conversation. Um, Another thing that I would say is... um, To be a part of the interfaith movement is to really recognize that you know you're not in this alone. Um, In a community of, of so much diversity, it can be very complicated to keep up with people's differences and similarities sometimes. But it genuinely means you have to have an interest in why people are different from you and why that difference is so beautiful. And why I think we've all been created so uniquely uh, in either the image or in the, in the light of God because uh, it gives us an opportunity to really explore what it means to really have 7 billion people existing on the earth. Mm-hmm. But it also means we have so much more to learn about the earth and the universe around us. And that curiosity <coughs> should be in a never-ending process. Um, It's funny you mentioned this because I actually sat in in front of a couple dozen uh, high school students at a mosque the day after the Pittsburgh shooting. Hmm. Um, And we had conversations about, you know, what does it mean to you when you find out that a, a white assailant of a shooting in Kentucky Uh, said that white people shouldn't shoot white people to another white person that had a gun. Or what it means for someone in Pittsburgh when a gunman started to shoot at a community only because that community was trying to show solidarity to another community. Um, And in a lot of that difficult conversation, um, it became very important and clear that if I were to present to any other high school community... Um, anything about interfaith, it has to be organic and intentional. If you're coming in with a biased intention, if you've already come in with assumptions or generalizations about a different community, there's no point in starting the conversation. Um, and sure enough, after we had that conversation um, about those difficult topics, the high school students themselves started talking about um gender differences within the Muslim community and how women have to bear a stronger responsibility when they wear a hijab in showing their Muslim identity on their sleeve, literally, Mm. and how the men could actually be more responsible in showing solidarity. And this wasn't a conversation I started. It was the students starting it themselves, which made it all the more rich and interesting to sort of moderate and facilitate.
0: Yeah, whenever people say that they're worried about the future, like I think about some of the high school students that I've taught for the last 10 years, and I'm a lot less worried than a lot of people I know, because I've, I've talked to these young people, and they are amazing.
1: Yeah, but inevitably, I don't think we should look at it that way either, um, because wisdom is a two-way street. Mm-hmm. There's a lot that we do have to learn from those before us who show us the way of understanding how how uneasy it is to tread this road, but how, how possible it is for us to overcome all the obstacles. What makes the, our generations and the generations younger than us so powerful, though, is that we don't have to do it the same way. We have innovation. We have new ways of doing things that we don't have to follow the same protocol that our fore, forefathers have been doing, and that's exactly the point. So Yep. Oh, I don't know what we what we're gonna ask.
0: So what's on your uh, plate for the next five or ten years? Like, what are some of your goals?
1: Oh boy, I wish I knew what I was doing tomorrow. Let alone yeah. five, ten years from now. Um, what do you want to do? In the long term, I certainly do hope that I can become even more involved in in doing my my interfaith activism work in a way that is uh, more productive and more impactful. Um, I actually am thinking of going into politics <coughs> myself, but definitely with a, an interfaith platform, which should be very interesting. Um, and I hope to actually get more, uh, more involved in uh, local community projects, because I think... I I I've become very jaded when it comes to doing activism work because it's such a slow process sometimes. Yeah, that I'm always looking for very tangible and meaningful things to do. So I'm always multitasking and trying to help like get a new community to build um, a vegetable garden or trying to help uh, different communities wash their clothes or some something that always keeps me involved at the. Uh, At the grassroots level, because if I know if if I lose that human touch, I know that I'm not going to be able to relate to those people that I'm trying to help the most and raising money for them just doesn't do that. It's actually being with them, knowing their stories and their struggles and seeing how beautifully human they are as much as you are.
0: Are there any organizations out there that you think that people should support who are doing work in interfaith uh, fields? Absolutely. Um, If we're talking at a national level, um, you have
1: organizations like the Interfaith Youth Corps uh, that focus specifically on uh, higher education campuses, um, what it means to make interfaith a social norm. Um, And they do it in a lot of amazing ways and allow for each college's context to really deal with the way that interfaith should be done. Um, Here locally in Los Angeles, um, there are organizations like the Gibort Center that focuses on interfaith literacy or New Ground, a a Muslim-Jewish partnership for change that focuses on relationship building uh, and difficult conversations that uh, all together can really make a big difference. but quite frankly, the best thing you can do is actually see if any town that you live in or travel to often has their own interfaith council that's either connected through the community or through a, a, a college or university. Because if you want to get involved, it has to start locally um, and you can really build yourself up from
0: there. Tahil Sharma, this has been a fantastic conversation. For me, you've given me a lot of really good things to think about. Um, Where can people find you or other important work if they want to know more, if they want to get in touch, or anything like that?
1: Um, You can definitely connect with me on social media. If you type my name, Tahil Sharma, you should be able to find me on Facebook. Um, On Twitter and Instagram, you can follow me at, at Interfaith Man. Um, I know it's really cheesy, but (laughs) it works. Um, And if anyone wants to really connect with me, they can actually email me at tahil, T-A-H-I-L, at bravenewfilms.org.
0: Thank you so much. This has been a really, really wonderful time with you today.
1: I'm so thankful to you, Greg, and to Classical Ideas Podcast for this amazing work.
0: Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Streibig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at at classicalideas@outlook.com.